Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at the Buntport Theater in Denver, Colorado. These stories were recorded live on June 18th, 2014. The theme was Baroque. All right, we're excited to have our next storyteller here. He is one of the marijuana critics for the Denver Post. So as you might imagine, he's been a busy man <laughs> this year. He's had, the guy's got a lot of work, which is awesome. Uh, he is also a fellow podcaster. He hosts a podcast called Whiskey and Cigarettes. You can just look it up using those two words, Whiskey and Cigarettes Podcast, and you will find him. Uh, we're very excited to have him here. Please welcome Jake Brown. Uh, thank you all for coming out. I'm also a stand-up comedian. Usually stand-up comedy and broke go pretty hand-in-hand. Kind of the default state for a lot of us. It's often where I get my best material. Uh, I haven't figured out a way to make this story that I'm going to tell you tonight funny yet. So I appreciate you guys indulging me. Uh, when I was 25 years old, I met a girl at a bar reading a book. Most people see a girl at the bar reading a book. They think pretentious loner. I fell in love. Uh, we spent the next hour talking about politics and religion and all of those vitally important topics when you're 25. Uh, and then we went to her house and watched Entourage. <laughs> a week later, we were dating. Uh, at the time, I was a waiter at a nightclub downtown. And I was making no money because I was a waiter at a nightclub downtown. Not an ideal gig. Uh, but she had a pretty sweet job working for a lawyer. I think she was either preparing or intimidating witnesses. I'm not sure which. <laughs> and every day on my way to work, I would take the bus past her place. And about three months into dating, I noticed all of her things were on the sidewalk. So I get up on the next stop, run over, chase away all the people picking through it, and I see an eviction notice on her door. Uh, by the time I was off work, all of her things were now in our living room which really upset my roommate. Uh, he was my best friend at the time, but see, we had one of those classically terrible relationships where we loved each other very dearly, but we also loved drinking very dearly. So it was just unstable all the time. Uh, everything was going great until one night in the middle of an argument, she ran into the bathroom and locked the door. All we heard were pills hitting the ground. This isn't Game of Thrones. I won't kill off a main character this quickly, guys. <laughs> what she had actually done was eaten a good handful of Tylenol in the drunkest suicide attempt ever. When she got out of the psych ward, she promised that she was going to curtail her drinking. And honestly, at that time, I didn't know how to break up with someone who had just attempted suicide. I'm sure that there is a way to do it, that there is some kind of protocol. Uh, but Google was still pretty young then, didn't know how to go about it. Uh, and to her credit, things did get better. Uh, but then a few months later, my roommate, best friend, also pot dealer, had someone give him a bunch of methadone. Uh, instead of politely refusing, like most 
you know, adult people would, uh, synthetic heroin. He instead watched every episode of The Sopranos, decided to move to San Francisco and become a street musician. And I was happy for him, uh, but neither the girlfriend nor my name was on the lease. Uh, we barely had enough money for next month's rent, let alone deposit. We had no car. We were broke. Uh, we pooled our money. She managed to get a one-bedroom and an apartment, but it was one person, one bedroom, no boyfriends. They'd had a bad experience. So I then began taking all of my worldly possessions, putting them on my computer chair, and rolling them down the street to the storage unit. And about three trips in, one of the wheel breaks. So then I'm doing wheelies on the way to the storage unit, looking like a certified madman. Uh, most nights I could stay there. I'd have to come over late when the roommates had gone to work, uh, be there very quietly, just huddled. And, uh, but I mean, there was a night where I had to sleep in the park. It was rough. And this went on for about two weeks. Uh, one morning I woke up and a cell phone went off, which was very confusing because at the time we had been sharing a phone. And I had that phone with me. Uh, as a general rule, I don't snoop through phones. I don't think any of you should. Uh, but I will always snoop through a burner. Uh, if you don't know what a burner is, you get them at 7-Eleven. Probably just watch The Wire, you'll be fine. <laughs> and so I opened the phone, and there's a message that said, Don, are you available for an out call? Now, at the time, I knew two things. One, my girlfriend's name was not, in fact, Don. The second was that out call was a term that prostitutes used. Don't ask me how I know the second one. <laughs> so I put the phone back and uh, pretended to go back to sleep. She wakes up about a half hour later. Hey, got a job with that lawyer. And I said nothing. Uh, instead, I went on Craigslist as soon as she left and found her ad. Uh, what I also stumbled upon was essentially a Yelp for prostitution, where the saddest men on the planet write real reviews about the prostitutes they sleep with. So I decided to email one because the internet. And, <laughs> and he, he emails me back right away, verifies everything, and even insinuates I am lucky because she chose to settle down with me. I respectfully disagreed. So I did uh, what any heartbroken Midwestern boy does. I called my mom, uh, who is here tonight. And she bought me a one-way ticket uh, to Amtrak back to Iowa. I had my bag of stuff that had been at that room, no money, no job, no car, and the severe need to get an STD test. Uh, fortunately enough, when I confronted her, she came clean about everything. She said what I had always suspected, <laughs> my biggest suspicion, which is that the CIA didn't approve of our relationship. She had to choose between the agency or me, and guys, she picked me. Now they were planning things on her phone and on the internet about her. I was literally dating Claire Dane's character from Homeland. <laughs> Only she couldn't get into the CIA and was a terrible liar. <laughs> and I told her I'd never talk to her again unless she came clean. Uh, my time in Iowa was lonely. And I was severely depressed. Uh, at this time, all of my friends from back then had moved away. And uh, 
During the days, I was helping my mom get her house ready to sell, but at night, I would walk to the gas station and buy a 40, and then I would walk back through these residential neighborhoods drinking a 40 in Iowa. (laughs) And that went on for a while, and she finally sold the house and, and was generous enough to give me a little bit of money from the sale, and I moved back to Denver. I'm not sure how the girlfriend and I got back together, She was definitely smarter than I was, uh, but I think part of forgiving her gave me my own little place in the world again when I hadn't had that in a long time. But we drank through the money pretty quickly, uh, and I think that she resented me catching her because she started to become very physically violent every time we drink, and she was maniacal. She started telling all of our friends that it was me that was hitting her, which was tough, and some people believed her until one night that old best friend crashed at the house and heard noises coming from the bedroom. He had to pull her off of me, pounding the back of my head while she screamed, Jake, stop hitting me, in a real moment of psychosis. That night, we slept head to feet like real men do, But we didn't get a lot of sleep because she was holding a conversation with multiple people in the hallway. Only she was the only one there. The next day she left with uh, the DNCs. The DNCs were in town at the time. And there were what we like to call political carnies or politicarnies that run around selling t-shirts and buttons and things like that. She was headed for the East Coast with the campaign trail. I wish I could tell you that the story ended there. I thought it had until I received a text message that said, the doctor says everything's going fine. I had no idea what that meant. She told me via text message that she was pregnant. I'm not a particularly noble person. I don't have a lot of valor to me. But that day I used up every ounce, scraped every dime together and bought a plane ticket to Florida to come and rescue her. (laughs) Once again, she was much smarter than I was. When we got back, she moved in. I started working two jobs to support her through the pregnancy, and we swore up and down that we were new people. And a baby will change you like that. And when my son was born, he was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. He was also one of the most expensive things I had ever seen. (laughs) Uh, She had a job and she was working the night shift, so I'd be up until 3 a.m. every morning taking care of him, then back at work 10 a.m. the next day. And we just couldn't catch up on sleeper bills. Um, After I had to go dumpster diving one night, and guys, I scored a bag, a garbage bag full of popcorn from a karate dojo's dumpster. It was a pretty good find for your first time out. Uh, At that point, I knew we needed help. Uh, We couldn't afford daycare, so my mom moved in to our tiny one-bedroom apartment. And this was a terrible idea. The girlfriend resented my mom for trying to help, and my mom resented the shitty parent that she was. Uh, And so that went on for a little bit. In retrospect, I don't think I should be surprised. I shouldn't have been surprised. Uh, when she said that she had been hiding money 
and that she was moving back with her parents in Arizona. I, I still remember the, the last night that I, I watched my son. Uh, we were listening to the Beatles because they were his favorite, and Blackbird came on. And I was bawling, <laughs> and my mom was bawling, and his perfect little head was resting right here, holding on like he knew it was about to happen. And then the next day he was gone. And I only knew him for nine months, but he changed me more than any person I've ever met. I was waiting for a long, I, I was preparing, I should say, for a long legal battle. Uh, until a week later, I found out that there was a 99.9% .9 chance that he was, in fact, not my son. She had lied about the entire thing, and I had to borrow $50 from my friend because I had nothing uh, to get a home paternity test. And opening that envelope is a type of hurt I hope that none of you ever have to feel. Maybe you're in a terrible relationship. Maybe you're broke right now. I just want to let you know that you don't deserve that. And you don't always have to feel that way. Um, for me, I've spent the last four years of my life picking up those broken pieces. And I finally feel like I'm back together. And I got to share that with all of you tonight. So thank you. Jake Brown. So our first storyteller is very near and dear to this show. She has been one of our favorite storytellers uh, for years now. And she, uh, earlier this year, she helped us to put on a collaboration with a theater here in town at, uh, off center at the Jones, which is part of the Denver Center for Performing Arts. She was one of our storytellers and her story was brought to life theatrically. It was actually really amazing. If you get a chance, you can actually look up lived relived on YouTube and you can see uh, some great video footage of her story uh, being interpreted with uh, some amazing filmmakers. Um, anyways, she's a great comedian and uh, I love her. Please welcome Timmy Lasley. Hello, hello, hello. Um, I, uh, the beauty of the English language is that so many words mean so many different things. So I went a dif different direction with the word broke. Um, hope you like it. <clears throat> they never got a good look at me on ultrasound. Apparently, my prenatal modesty proved too great a match for modern science. <laughs> That's actually how I ended up with the name Timmy. My parents were hoping for a boy, as they already had two girls, and wishful thinking left them without a, a contingency plan. The story goes that they could never figure out conclusively what sex I was based on the ultrasound, but what they could see was that I was going to be the proud owner of a very large nose. <laughs> the doctor's first words as he took me out of my mother and welcomed me into the world was, look at the schnoz on that kid. True story. The students at the school where my father worked eventually named me Cubert, 
the title character of an arcade game from 1982, who some of you may remember was basically a walking nose. My uncle Russell always said that if I ever grew into my nose and my toes, I'd be seven foot three and three quarters. I don't remember any of this, but everybody has those stories about themselves that they grow up being told over and over and over again. This is just part of my origin story, the, the myth of me, as it were. The first time I broke my nose, I was 18 months old. The swings behind the church we attended had these large slabs of, of heavy metal for the seats, which you would never see today, but I can totally imagine they were perfectly ideal for like picking up perfect momentum on that downswing. Oh. <laughs> now the thing about me as an 18-month-old is that I didn't know shit about momentum. What I did know, however, was that my older sister was on the swing I wanted and I was going to do something about it. I stood behind the swing, tiny baby fist pulled back, poised and ready to deal a blow for justice. Now the thing about 18-month-olds in general is that their nose is about the same height as the standard American swing as it begins its upswing. So the metal slab caught me right at the bridge of my nose, proving once and for all that babies, however hardy their skeletons may be, are not literally made of rubber. The second time I broke my nose, I was three years old at a birthday party for my grandmother. The adults had put all the children in the finished ba basement to eat at the bottom of a long flight of concrete stairs. There was a, a door that led out to the, to the backyard, but to get back into the house, the door to the basement locked automatically, so you had to knock to be let in. Now that I'm older, I find this arrangement absolutely ingenious. But as a three-year-old with a tiny, tiny bladder, I hated it. I hated having to wait for acknowledgement, to be acknowledged. That's a trait that's followed me into my adulthood, for sure. <laughs> I remember knocking and waiting, and knocking and waiting, and banging and waiting, and yelling, and boom, the door opens right into me, and I tumble all the way down the concrete. I was knocked unconscious, and the ambulance was sent for. And don't worry, everyone. My nose broke my fall. <laughs> the third time I broke my nose, I was eight years old, and it was the straight-forward application of a speeding soccer ball directed at my awkward, uncoordinated head that did it. We never even went to the doctor for this one. I just crunched it back into place and quelled the bleeding like some goddamn playground hero. I've always been a little insecure about my nose. I, I really, I can't figure out why, really. I mean, who knows, maybe it's a thing that happens when you grow up hearing adults exclaim in dismay at the size and shape of the feature centered directly in the middle of your face. Maybe that's it, I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's my own tastes. I've been trying for a couple years to make this thought into a j joke on stage that it's not that I don't think I'm pretty, it's just that maybe I'm not my type. That's the best response that's ever gotten. <laughs> but shouldn't that be allowed? Like, why do I have to find myself attractive? Like, I'd love to write something about why it is that society seems to need us to find ourselves attractive. I think the part of the reason why that joke has never worked in any of its iterations, except for here tonight, <laughs> is that an audience 
can feel my insecurity with my own physical presence. An insecurity so deeply rooted that it literally goes all the way back to the moment of my birth. Look at the schnoz on that kid. <laughs> I studied acting in college. My junior year, we were required to take an audition class. As part of the course, we gave mock interviews where one student would sit, sit in the front as the rest of the class asked them questions as though they were casting directors or potential employers for actors. Questions like, under what circumstances would you be okay with nudity? How do you feel about kissing someone of the same sex? And one question that I was asked that particularly stuck in my mind, would you be willing to get plastic surgery? It's common knowledge that most of Hollywood has some sort of work done, either it's major or it's minor. And as an adolescent, I often dreamed about what it would be like to walk around through the world with a tiny, perfect, and very, in my mind, feminine nose. But when asked the question, I hesitated. I hadn't actually given much thought to the idea of plastic surgery in, in a number of years. But in that moment, it just hit me wrong. It didn't sit right with me. And I think it might, have been, it might have had something to do with who it was that was asking me. It had come from a boy who had repeatedly told me how much he liked it when I straightened my hair. I believed he used the word hot a lot. Anytime I straightened my curls, he would make a point to say, you look hot when you straighten your hair. And in my over-analytical mind, I translated this to, you look hot when you tamp down that part of you that does not conform to societal standards of beauty. More simply put, you look hot when you meet my expectations. <laughs> now, this was actually a really great question, the kind of question this exercise was meant to entertain, the kind of question that is designed to help you define yourself as an actor, as a person, find your boundaries, what do you want to do with yourself? But somehow, when this young man asked it, it took on a deeper meaning for me. In that moment, all I could hear was this young man asking me if I would ever be willing to shave off part of the bone that creates the structure of the center of my face so that I could be hot. I stammered through some answer about maybe being willing to get braces or something, but in my head, all I was thinking was, oh no, I'm never going to get to be an actor. I've broken my nose too many times. More than a decade later, I'm still acting, performing, writing, creating, all with the same nose, eyes, lips, teeth that I started with. Because hey, if Steve Buscemi can do it, right? <laughs> I'm more comfortable with the fact that I have my father's nose. These days, to be honest, I'm much more concerned with the fact that I have my mother's lack of jawline. That was supposed to be a joke, damn it. Uh, <laughs> but it, it just goes to show you that it will always be something, some part of yourself that you struggle to accept. One of the best lessons I've ever learned in life is that I look exactly the way I'm supposed to and that it is not my job to find myself attractive. I'll leave that to all of you. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, stop it. No, really, keep going. It's my job to be the best person I can with whatever I have with me when I came into this world. I may someday still get braces, and if I do, it will be an entirely career-based decision. 
But if and when I do, I'll do it with the knowledge that nothing about my looks is broken. I'll just scream a battle cry or something. You can break my nose, but you cannot break my spirit. Thank you very much. <laughs> The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by Ron Doyle. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl, or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to thenarratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>